0: Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Church. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him, for the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. I'm Beth. I volunteer here at the church, and it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. And if you're a guest with us, welcome. Thank you for checking us out today. Today we continue in our teaching series, The Power of Hope. It helps, if it helps you today in your worship experience, you will find a message notes insert in your worship folder. And on the opposite side, there's a life group guide that goes along with today's message that you can use with your life group or for your own personal devotions. Pastor Tim, what can you tell us about today's message?
1: Well, once again, welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Pastor Tim, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's so good that you're all here this morning. We are in week three of this teaching series, and it is really a, a challenging series as we look at the, the meaning behind that well-known passage. For I know that I, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to make you prosper, plans for a future. And as we've discovered the last two weeks, those foundational components of this chapter are very challenging, that God puts us where He wants us, even if it's Babylon, even if it's exile, that it's it's very hard to understand what God has for us. And, and today we're going to be looking at one of the most, I believe, the cha- most challenging concepts for a person of faith, and that's to pray for your enemy. And it's something that's kind of counter-cultural for us, counter goes against what we want to do, because most of us would not want to pray for an enemy, not want to Do that, and we're going to discover and look through um, who is our enemy, what is it make what makes an enemy, and look through some of that, and we're going to go to Jesus' words about praying for an enemy and connecting it to this one verse, Jeremiah 29, 7. And we're actually going to stay on that verse this week and next week because there's so much to this one single verse. Because, like so many things, it's easy to say, pray for your enemy. Um, it's very hard to actually do it. Um, And so today we're going to look at how we go from bitterness to freedom. What's missing in that title is there's a step in between that forgiveness component. But how do we move from bitterness, from the bad things that have happened to us, realizing that sometimes God makes things happen to us that are not necessarily good things because he's trying to grow in us, teach us, and and sometimes correct us. But we're going to get there. Hold tight for a few minutes. Um, We're going to continue in an attitude of worship, but before we do that, we're going to pray together. Beth, would you lead us in a moment of prayer?
0: you pray with me? God, creator of all, we thank you for this time to be together in worship, that we will hear your word, that our hearts will listen, and that we will act upon your word. As we pray in your son's name. Amen.
1: I think that the hardest commandment in the Bible to obey... Is the commandment that Jesus says that we should pray for our enemies. In Luke's Gospel in the New Testament, in chapter 6, Jesus says, But I tell you, but you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. It's hard because prayer is often the last thing we want to do for our enemies, right? Mostly, there are a lot of things we would like to do to our enemies, and prayer is not on top of the list. We'd like to get even, or maybe we want to make them suffer the way we have suffered, possibly. We get angry, we get hurt. But prayer doesn't seem to be the first thing that comes to our minds when we talk about dealing with our enemies. So in case you haven't been here for the last few weeks, um, let me give you some background to Jeremiah 29 to catch you up. Um, The year was 597 B.C., and the king Nebuchadnezzar, of babylon attacked jerusalem and sent many of the people into exile and it was humiliating it was a humiliating experience for the people of god and and it was it was a punishment for them because of their rebellion they rebelled against god and and honestly in, in a very real sense the people of israel got what was coming to them they 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 really did, and, and what they got was 70 years, 70 years in exile. That's a, that's a really long time, but they got 70 years in exile, in captivity, in a foreign land, ruled by pagans, people who didn't worship God. And not all the Jews were taken to Babylon. So Jeremiah was one of the people that didn't get taken to Babylon, and he was left behind. And chapter 29 is a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the people in exile in Babylon, and he wrote it to encourage them. And so um, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 9, that's where we're going to start today, but it's not where we're going to end. Um, it starts like this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren, multiply Do not dwindle away. God's message to his people was very unexpected. Very unexpected. Jeremiah then continues in verse 7, and this is where we're going to focus today, when he says this, And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. That's where we go back to that I sent you into exile thing. Here's where it gets good. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God's word to his people is very straightforward. I put you in Babylon on purpose, for a purpose, although I know you are humiliated. It's humiliating and you're discouraged and you're angry. I don't want you to despair. Don't despair about this thing. Instead, I want you to pray for the Babylonians. I want you to look at this part of verse 7 again carefully, the very last part. It says, pray to the Lord for it, it being Babylon. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, for Babylon's welfare will determine your welfare. This is a message from God that, that all of us really need to hear today. Some of us who hear these words today may find ourselves in our own bad situa- situation, whether it's at work or it could be, um, you know, at school or at home. Someone has hurt us deeply, uh, and, and it's all we can do not to strike back. Right? We've all been in that situation where, where with all of our energy, with all of our might, we can barely hold back the bitterness that's that's fuming inside of us, and and some of it sometimes spills over or just really comes out, you know, and and then. Uh, and then the reality is is even if our life depended on it we couldn't pray for our enemies even if our life depended there's no way we would ever be able to pray for our enemies and then god says do it anyway right do it anyway but that's the whole point of jeremiah 29:7 it's the whole point shalom everyone say shalom Shalom. Shalom is the, the, the Hebrew word for peace, and it's used three times in this one verse. Besides peace, shalom means blessing. It means wholeness. It means completeness. The absence of conflict. Prosperity. It's not just like peace, dude. It, it's so much more. And here's the shocking fact. At least it would have been shocking to the, the people, the Jews that were in exile, God ties his blessing to the people of Israel that are in exile to the blessing of the Babylonians. And this seems very counterintuitive since the exiles were God's people and the Babylonians were not. They were were pagans. That means they didn't worship God. God is saying that they were better off in Babylon and Babylon was better off because they were there. So, So this is like the Old Testament way of saying Uh, or or Old Testament version of Jesus calls for his believers to be like the salt of the earth, right? Or or the light of the world from Matthew 5. Uh, Or said another way, um, it's like God's message saying, you need Babylon and Babylon needs you. And immediately we can hear the number of objections. Have you ever said something and people like were immediately, um, no, let me tell you something about that. Maybe it's, it's not just me. I'm glad. It's not just me that people don't contradict the things you say, or I say. The Jews would have immediately said back, uh, God, wait a minute. No. I don't think so. I I don't think you're, you're saying this right because these people are pagans. No, that can't be right. These are pagans. They invaded our land, God. You remember that when they burned the temple? Your holy dwelling place, and they, like, destroy Jerusalem? They're a vile people. Remember the cutting off of heads and the massacring of people, the killing, the murders, the thieves? Why would you want us to pray for them? They don't deserve it. I must have misheard you. And you know what? The reality is, is they would have been right to ask that. Very much. They would have been right to ask it because the honest reality is the Babylonians didn't deserve it at all. Every single one of those points is valid. The Babylonians weren't good old wholesome people. They weren't. It is impossible to call the Babylonians genuinely wholesome people because you can't call a murdering savage genuinely wholesome. Right To spread their kingdom, the Babylonians were ruthless killers and they massacred anyone who opposed them. Remember the pile of skulls that I told you about that they put in the city square to thwart off any uprisings? This is the kind of people we're talking about. Life was cheap, death was easy, and torture was a means to an end that that thwarted future foes. But God says to his discouraged and dejected people, I know you don't like them. I don't care. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't like them. You're going to be here for a while. You're going to be in Babylon, so settle down and make the best of it. Don't treat the Babylonians the way they treated you. Try to bless them and be a blessing to them. Pray for the Babylonians. They certainly need your prayer. and you my people need to pray as you pray i will bless them and in blessing them you too will be blessed nothing comes more natural to us than than to hate those who have who have mistreated us but But God has a better way, and and I I know people people would say you know everything the world says about human relationships is wrong. You know we should get even, that we should we should have revenge at all costs. You know, and and the world says get even, but but you know God says seek good for those who have wronged you. The world says get angry, but God says pray for them. Where the world says to to look for chances to make other people suffer for what they've done, you know God says look for opportunities to bless people. The world says, don't waste time loving bad people. Get rid of them in your life. God says, I want you to love them anyway. You know, honestly, we need to pray for our enemies, and they honestly need our prayers. Because if we don't pray for our enemies, who will? If we don't pray for our enemies, how will they ever change? And if we don't pray for our enemies, how will we ever be free from our bitterness? Interesting point, I had a conversation after the last service. Someone asked me, if I'm, a, if I'm holding bitterness after someone who has already passed, should I still pray about it? And I said, yes, because at this point, it's about your bitterness still. Even though you can't talk to them anymore, you're still harboring bitterness. Very much so, you need to pray about it. every time we face someone who has mistreated us, we we really only have three options. The first thing is we can reciprocate that total hatred, right? We can get mad. Ah, you hate me. I hate you too. Let's fight. Right? But really, it accomplishes nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. The second thing we can do is we can struggle to hold back that anger, right? Passive-aggressively. What does it do? It makes us emotionally drained. Completely burned out as we hold it all in. The third thing we can do is we can pray for God to bless them, and that opens the door, honestly, for God to bless us as well. And so we come to our first point. And so, if you're using the sermon notes this morning, we're going to come to our first point now. And that, and this is that we're going to get to some questions that Jeremiah 29:7 raised that we really need to consider. And that first one is, where do our enemies come from? Where do our enemies actually come from? You see, on a human level, on a human level, there's many answers to that question. Where do our enemies come from? Enemies are most often come from among those closest to us. Enemies truly most often come from those closest to us. Sometimes people turn against us for the foolish things we do. Other times we may suffer at the hands of someone Against whom we've not done anything wrong. People may ridicule us because of our appearance, our background, our personal beliefs, our ethnic origin, our color of our skin, the personal possessions in our life, our position in life, our money, or our lack thereof, or for you know a million other reasons. You could you can name anything and someone someone might turn against you. And they may they may think we're boring, they may think we're empty, we're trivial, or we just bother them. And an obstacle We could be an obstacle to their career, or they may—they may be prejudiced against us for no good reason whatsoever. Perhaps they dislike us because we've succeeded where they've failed, or we failed where they succeeded. I don't know. Who knows? Enemies, honestly, enemies don't explain themselves. They're just enemies. On a deeper level, though, if we really go deeper, our enemies come from God on a deeper level, our enemies come from God. And let me explain. God allows them to enter our lives for reasons that are rarely apparent to us at the time. Last week, I shared a quote from Tony Evans where I said, God either allows or approves of everything that happens. And that that framework Changes how we perceive things that God either approves of or allows everything and this is kind of that same mindset that if if God Is God and he either approves of or allows everything to happen Then that kind of shifts our perspective on things, but God allows Enemies to enter our lives for reasons that are rarely apparent to us at the time and and there's an, an excellent biblical example of this in Joseph from Genesis the the last third of Genesis and his brothers um, in the book of yeah, genesis but it illustrates this so joseph is thrown into a well and sold into a, as a slave with the midianites at the end of the book of genesis and the brothers had only evil in their heart they wanted to just get rid of their younger brother when potiphar's wife falsely accuses joseph um, you know she lied because of her injured pride you know nothing good in that process um, Joseph's thrown into jail, no one could have ever seen that eventually he would one day become the prime minister of Egypt. Second in command only to Pharaoh. And even Joseph himself had no idea what it all meant until years later, during a great famine when his brothers approached him, thinking he was an Egyptian. and They didn't even recognize him. They didn't even know who he was. They believed that he was long gone, long dead. Only then did God's plan actually come into focus. And, and that's why three times in Genesis 45, Joseph declares to his brothers that God had sent him to Egypt to put him in a position where he could one day save his family and preserve a godly heritage on earth. Years later, after that, Joseph utters these famous words that sum up his understanding of God's sovereignty and what his brothers did. This is what he says. He says, You intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Only a person with a deep belief and understanding of the sovereignty of God could utter those words after so much suffering and so much trial and so much mistreatment in their life. And it's the same thing with the the, um, Babylonians and and how they conquered the Jews and how they humiliated them. And and yet, God meant that for good. And not just the good for the Jewish people, but also the good for the Babylonians. So where do our enemies come from? They come from God. in In the same sense that if he didn't allow it, our enemies couldn't trouble us. If God didn't allow it, they wouldn't be able to trouble us. Our second question that we have to ask is, who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? In a, in a broad sense, our, our enemies are anyone who turns against us. Any, an enemy is anyone who turns against us dictionary defines an enemy as one who feels hatreds towards intends to injure to or opposes the interests of another and it's, it's it's really vital that we think about what that enemy is and we don't just like restrict enemies to like you know terrorists or the head of a political regime or you know na- national rogues or something you know but cuz personal enemies tend to be much closer to home It's not some far-off, faceless thing. In fact, home is the first place to look for your enemies. Home is the first place to look for our enemies. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, your enemies will be right in your own household. In that very passage, he also gave three specific relationships that often go sour. He said that a father and his son a mother and her daughter, and a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And so we can easily infer that other close relationships sometimes go bad as well, maybe like a parent and a child, a husband and a wife, a grandparent's relationship, aunts and uncles, and various other distant relationships. It certainly includes people at work, and hear this out, those who attend church, The enemies we are told to love usually are not people in some distant, far-off land. Most of us will never visit those places that we see on TV that are war-torn and falling apart, but we do have to go home every day and face people who may or may not be happy and excited to see us. Every day we go to work, with people who may or may not like us. We may even come to church one day and see people that we may not want to see. If this teaching of Jesus is going to work, we must first work on it in the relationships closest to us. See, God places inside every family some people who rub us the wrong way. I heard a Bible teacher once say that God puts in every family people who he uses to prepare us for leadership in the world. He put a Judas, an Absalom, a Peter, a Barnabas, or a Timothy in every family. And now you can start naming people in your family. And that's why our closest friends, our strongest supporters, and our most prominent critics will probably come from our own flesh and blood we have to learn to deal with the people closest to us before we can impact the world around us. So let me be very, very clear. Our children could be our enemies. Our husband could be our enemies. Our wife could be our enemy. Our parents could be our enemies. And indeed, our ex-wife or our ex-husband could be our enemy. It isn't just the somewhere-out-there, faceless nameless, anonymous, evil person who is an enemy. Sooner or later, the people we love will hurt us. And at that point, and for at least that moment, they have become our enemy. And if we're honest about it, and I sure hope we are honest people, if we're honest about it, we have become their enemy too. Takes two to tango, folks. Saying like, Something like that happened to the Jews in exile. They hated the Babylonians with a fierce hate. I want, to consi- I want you to consider the, the following words from Psalm 137. And these are, these are the concluding words of that psalm. And, and just hear them out. Oh Lord, remember what the Edomites did the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. Oh Babylon, you will, dis- you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them into the rocks. Have you ever prayed like that? Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them into the rocks. There is no way to soften those words or to diminish the anger that they express. The Jews in exile are asking God to send someone to invade Babylon and to do to them as they had done to them in Jerusalem. And then to take their babies, their children, the Babylonian children, and to crush them against the rocks. It's hard to imagine closing a worship service this way. And yet we cannot deny that Psalm 137 is a part of the inspired text the living, the Word of God, Bible. Isaiah thirteen contains a prophecy of God's judgment against the Babylonians. That needs to be read with this. We all know people that like to read one verse and not another in the Bible. It's important that you read things in its entirety. And so, this prayer that the people in exile read or wrote. And prayed is important to read and understand. But it's also important to know the prophecy that was given as well. And so in Isaiah 13, we find this prophecy that explains how God answered that prayer in Psalm 137. So let me share that with you. Anyone who is captured will be cut down, run through with a sword, their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes. Their homes will be sacked. Their wives will be raped. Look, I will stir up the Medes against the Bab- against Babylon. They cannot be tempted by silver or bribed with gold. The attacking armies will shoot down the young men with arrows. They will have no mercy on helpless babies and will show no compassion for children. Even though the prayer from Psalm 137 seems extreme. God answered it literally. And he did it by using one pagan kingdom, the Medes, to judge another pagan kingdom, the Babylonians. That's how God's judgment came on those who so severely mistreated his people. It's not as if we have to choose between loving our enemies and hoping that someday they'll be punished. If we do our part, which is loving them, God can certainly take care of the judging them. In the meantime, though, we will be blessed if we work for the prosperity of our enemies and pray for God's blessing on them. And if all of this sounds confusing... Then I invite you just to remember this. If we remain bitter, we cannot get better. If we remain bitter, we cannot get better. If we try to get even with those who hurt us, we are most likely going to hurt ourselves. If we decide to punish our enemies, we are just trying to wield God's authority. Because we're not called to be vengeful, we're not called to seek revenge. But if we love our enemies and bless them and pray for them, things will go better for them and for us. And then we can sleep well at night, knowing that if, if they need to be punished, God can take care of that. God has, his, in his own timing and in his own way, God will do what God will do. And that's really the meaning of Jeremiah 29.7. Of course, it's easy to talk about abstractly. It's much harder to love our enemies daily. We are to love those who detestfully use us and abuse us and victimize us again and again. It's not easy to do in any case. And it is hard to love when we feel deeply and repeatedly violated and, and our trust has been destroyed. And yet, Jesus' commandment remains. But you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. and We can't escape that command. It is a crucial part of our spiritual journey. Moving from bitterness to forgiveness to freedom. And that freedom, friends, is something that we experience in Christ. And I hope you see that as we progress through this, as challenging and as hard and as deep as this goes, all of this paves a way to that verse that we've all memorized. But without this background, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to make you prosper, plans for a future. That verse is meaningless if we don't understand the background to it. And all of this that goes behind it. We cannot be set free until we set others free to be blessed by God. Let's pray. God of all grace and love, each of us has found ourselves in the midst of an unexpected enemy. We have heard the teaching of your Son, Jesus, the call to love the enemies that you have put or allowed to enter our lives. God, give us the strength to let go of the hatred, to let go of the bitterness, and to love unconditionally, as you do. To love our enemies and to bless them in every way that we can. And then in blessing them, you would, in turn, bless our lives through them. Father, we give our hearts to you. We commit our lives to your Son, Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.